Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 11, chapters 41 through 50, and I'm live streaming in a very different way than normal. So if you're watching this on Facebook, YouTube, or any of the other places that we live stream to, the display is going to look different for you. I'm in Cairo, Egypt with a different type of bandwidth in terms of the amount of content that I can stream to the internet. So I've had to configure things in a slightly different way. So you're in the right place if you're used to seeing me live stream in other ways. This is just some impermanence where I'm now live streaming through Zoom rather than the live streaming software that I usually use because that takes up too much bandwidth and I just don't have that here in Egypt. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. As you know, if you've joined us regularly over the years, we typically start this class with a meditation, then we go into the teaching, and because of the limited bandwidth that I have, I've decided to forego the meditation until I get back to Chiang Mai where I'm on my normal Wi-Fi and we have our normal schedule and all those kind of things, which will be this Wednesday. I'll actually be back in Chiang Mai and able to start doing things the way that I have been in the past. So thank you all for understanding all this impermanence as I travel. Thank you to Miranda, Bassam, and others who have contributed to keep the classes going. It's been wonderful to know that you guys as a community aren't attached to me being here to actually learn and you understand that it's important to learn even when your teacher is not there and not available and impermanent because there's going to be those situations where your teacher isn't able to attend or in the future your teacher is going to ultimately die and you're going to need to continue to learn and practice these teachings as you progress in the world. So it's wonderful to see you guys as a community continuing to learn and practice even in the absence of the teacher. So that's been wonderful to see. So I'll go ahead and switch over to the chapters that we're going to be studying today, which I mentioned are chapters 41 through 50. And the way that we do our class is there's a student who will read the chapter, then I'll share any teachings on that chapter. Then after I share the teachings, I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have related to that chapter. And we'll go through each chapter this way. So if you're in Zoom, you're able to communicate with the moderator, Miranda, who is organizing volunteers to actually read each chapter. So it'd be wonderful if you would like to contribute to the reading if you're in Zoom, or if you're on the live stream and you'd like to come into Zoom and participate that way, you're welcome to do that. So I'll just turn things over to all of you for class today, and we'll get started. Um, yes, sir, I will read chapter 41. Uh, 
terrible and harsh prison of hell and prison of animal realm. So too, monks, when one does not have confidence in cultivating wholesome qualities, when one does not have a sense of moral wrongdoing in cultivating wholesome qualities, when one does not have moral concern in cultivating wholesome qualities, when one does not have energy in cultivating wholesome qualities, when one does not have wisdom in cultivating wholesome qualities, in the noble one's discipline, one is called a poor, impoverished, needy person. Having no confidence, no sense of moral wrongdoing, no moral concern, no energy, no wisdom in cultivating wholesome qualities, that poor, impoverished, needy person engages in misconduct by body, speech, and mind. This, I say, is his getting into debt. To conceal his bodily misconduct, to conceal his verbal misconduct, to conceal his mental misconduct, he nurtures an evil, unwholesome desire. He wishes, let no one know me. He intends with the desire, let no one know me. He speaks statements with the desire, let no one know me. He makes bodily endeavors with the desire, let no one know me. This, I say, is the interest he must pay. Well-behaved fellow monks speak thus about him. This venerable one acts in such a way, behaves in such a way. This, I say, is his being advised. When he has gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, evil, unwholesome thoughts accompanied by remorse attack him. This, I say, is his prosecution. Then, with the breakup of the body after death, that poor, impoverished, needy person who engaged in misconduct by body, speech, and mind is bound to the prison of hell or the prison of the animal realm. I do not see, monks, any other prison that is as terrible and harsh and such an obstacle to attaining the unsurpassed security from bondage, enlightenment, as the prison of hell or the prison of the animal realm. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So as I've spoke in other classes related to this book, the volume 11, The Realms of Existence, where the Buddha is teaching the realm of hell, animal realm, afflicted spirits, human realm, and heavenly realm, the Buddha never uses these realms to fear, guilt, or shame somebody into actually learning and practicing his teachings, but he does share the truth of what occurs as we are reborn in the cycle of rebirth because that's important wisdom to understand as it relates to the natural laws of existence in order for us to awaken to enlightenment we need to learn multiple teachings and one of the teachings that we learn as we progress in our practice is the cycle of rebirth and it's typically something you approach later in your practice that's why in this book series it's volume 11 rather than volume 1 because it's best to kind of postpone the investigation of the cycle of rebirth until much later. But now, if you've been learning and practicing for a period of maybe one year, two years, or what have you, it might be wise for you to be learning this and understand that the Buddha is indeed teaching these five realms and what occurs in these realms and how you might actually end up in one of these realms and what you would experience in these various realms. So I'm going to start at the end here because the Buddha talks about the realm of hell in the realm of the animal realm as being a prison. Once a being is reborn into the hell realm or the realm of animals, it's very difficult to get out of this realm because these beings, their existence is such that it's very difficult and very problematic to really move up into other realms. It still can be accomplished, but it takes many, 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 many rebirths. 
So for example, in the animal realm, there's animals that sustain their life off of killing, off of stealing, and they have sexual misconduct. The first three of the five precepts, which we know if you're killing, stealing, or having sexual misconduct, there's an enormous amount of unwholesome gamma that you generate as part of that. So part of the basic teachings of the Buddha is to eliminate those things from our practice. So if we are killing, stealing, and having sexual misconduct, we're generating unwholesome gamma. But these animals are born in such a condition that their life is sustained by killing, stealing, and having sexual misconduct. So it's very difficult for animals to be reborn into other realms where they actually have the capability to attain enlightenment. Because in the realm of hell, animal, and afflicted spirits, you're incapable of developing the mind to a point where you can attain enlightenment and escape the cycle of rebirth. You would need a human birth or a existence in the heavenly realm in order to attain enlightenment. And the human realm is the ideal realm to actually attain enlightenment because you're experiencing all three feelings of discontentedness, which is pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And as a human, you have the capability to learn, reflect, and practice to acquire wisdom and evolve the mind to eliminate discontentedness and experience enlightenment. So here the Buddha is describing hell in the animal realm as a prison because once you're there, there's continuous rebirth in those realms before you're able to gradually make your way out of those realms. So once you get reborn into those realms, there's countless existences that you're going to have to go through. And now that you're human, there's no doubt that you've had countless rebirths in these other realms at some point in time. You may not remember those at this time, but there's been countless births in the animal realm and potentially you've been in hell at some point in the past as well. But now in the present moment, you're in the human realm and this is the ideal time for you to actually attain enlightenment. And the Buddha talks here at the beginning of what is needed as part of this progress to enlightenment. And he's talking about it in terms of uh, when one does not have confidence in cultivating wholesome qualities, but you can actually switch this because he's talking about what leads to the hell realm and the animal realm. But for what you're interested in doing is you're interested in cultivating the qualities that will lead to enlightenment. So what you do is you take what he's sharing here and you word it in a positive to understand what it is that you need to cultivate in your practice in order to get to enlightenment. So when he says one does not have confidence in cultivating wholesome qualities, what you need to do is you need to cultivate the confidence to be able to have this development of wholesome qualities in your life and have this sense of moral wrongdoing. Moral wrongdoing is knowing what is wholesome and unwholesome. That's what a sense of moral wrongdoing is, is that you know the five precepts, you know that the qualities of mindfulness and concentration, you know the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, and all of these others that are taught as part of the Buddhist teachings are helping you to understand this kind of right from wrong, so to speak, or this wholesome and unwholesome. That's what moral wrongdoing is. So you would need to cultivate the understanding of what is wholesome and unwholesome. And then moral concern is having the concern to not do unwholesome things. That if we know 
what's wholesome and unwholesome, but we continue to do the unwholesome, then we don't have moral concern because we're not uh, in a mindset of understanding the dangers and the difficulties that we're going to encounter as a result of doing these unwholesome things. So when our intention, speech, and actions are purified and we're doing wholesome things, then we experience wholesome results through our wise decision-making. So it's moral concern that motivates us individually to then apply our understanding of the moral wrongdoing. And then when one has energy, what the Buddha is talking about here is that enlightenment factor of energy, having the enthusiasm, the motivation, the will to practice and develop your practice. When one does not have wisdom, we would like to cultivate wisdom. That's what the ultimate goal of this path is, is to cultivate wisdom because that transforms ignorance and allows one to then move the mind to this enlightened mental state as you cultivate the wisdom of this path and get to the point where you eliminate discontentedness. So the Buddha is explaining when you don't have these things, this is considered a poor, impoverished, and needy person. And then he talks about here, when one doesn't have these things, this needy, this poor, impoverished, needy person engages in misconduct by body, speech, and mind. Because when we don't have confidence, when we don't have the moral wrongdoing, we don't have moral concern, we don't have the energy to put forth to actually practice, when we don't have the wisdom, then we will tend to do unwholesome things and we'll engage in this misconduct. And then as part of that, we oftentimes try to conceal our bodily misconduct, our verbal misconduct, and our mental misconduct, hoping that nobody finds out what we're actually doing. We're trying to kind of protect our reputation by kind of hiding the unwholesome things that we're doing. And then the Buddha talks about, you know, people who are more developed in their practice might help this person or attempt to help this person by giving them advisement and providing them guidance to help them. And then when we are alone, what the Buddha is talking about here is one having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, to an empty dwelling, evil, unwholesome thoughts accompany this person. And this is essentially attacking the mind. And this is being prosecuted by our own unwholesome deeds, our own unwholesome bodily, verbal, and mental conduct. That if we're trying to hide the things that we're doing and we're not applying effort to learn and develop and cultivate our wholesome qualities of life and our wholesome qualities of mind, when we're alone and we're by ourselves, that really attacks our mind and kind of shows us that we're not functioning in a wholesome way. And that's us kind of prosecuting ourselves. And then the Buddha talks about, yes, you know, if this is occurring with the breakup of the body, essentially death, when the body and the mind separate at death, then there's going to be this potential rebirth in hell or the animal realm. And this is like a prison the way the Buddha sees it because there's so many countless rebirths that you have to go through before you get to a birth in the human realm or the heavenly realm with an opportunity to attain enlightenment. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions on this chapter, sir. All right, so let's go to chapter 42. Few animals are reborn among human beings or heavenly beings. What do you think, monks? Which is more? The little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great earth? Venerable sir, the great earth is more. 
The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken off in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away from the animal realm, are reborn among human beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away from the animal realm, are reborn in hell in the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because, monks, they have not seen the Four Noble Truths. What for? The Noble Truth of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Elimination of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Way Leading to the Elimination of Discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. What do you think, monks? Which is more, the little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great earth? Venerable sir, the great earth is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away from the animal realm, are reborn among the heavenly beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away from the animal realm, are reborn in hell, in the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because, monks, they have not seen the Four Noble Truths. What for? The Noble Truth of Discontentedness. The Noble Truth of the Cause of Discontentedness. The Noble Truth of the Elimination of Discontentedness. The Noble Truth of the Way Leading to the Elimination of Discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is just helping us understand that beings in the animal realm are more likely to be reborn in the hell realm, the animal realm, or the realm of afflicted spirits rather than in the human realm or the heavenly realm. Beings in the animal realm can indeed be reborn into the human realm and or the heavenly realm, but it's very rare is what the Buddha is basically explaining here. So he's helping you to really appreciate this human birth again as i mentioned the buddha doesn't try to guilt shame or fear people into practicing his teachings by you know talking about this doom and gloom of hell animal realm or afflicted spirits but instead he's explaining it in a very positive way just to help you understand the rarity of this human birth so that you will appreciate it and not allow it to go to waste and if you can gain understanding of that and appreciation of this human birth then you can perhaps move away from complacency if complacency ever sets in and hinders you from being able to progress in your practice by investigating the teachings, applying 
energy and moving the mind closer and closer to enlightenment, you can just always keep in mind how rare it is to have this human birth. So if you're on the fence about whether to meditate or not, or you're kind of feeling unmotivated to meditate, or you're feeling unmotivated to come to class, or you're feeling unmotivated to pick up the book or watch a YouTube video that I share in terms of these teachings or coming to any kind of events or reaching out for personal guidance from your teacher. Anytime you feel the mind trying to have complacency, you can remember teachings like this that are meant to motivate you and encourage you along the path to help you understand how rare this human birth is. And that's how you can use a teaching like this. And of course, the Buddha is explaining the reason why these beings in the animal realm have very rare opportunity to be reborn into the human realm or heavenly realm is because they haven't seen the Four Noble Truths. They don't understand them with their lack of wisdom in the animal realm. They're not able to learn the noble truth of discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward leading to the elimination of discontentedness. So we can appreciate that not only are we human, but here we are with the Buddhist teachings at our fingertips with a teacher that's motivated to help you. And there's no reason why you can't get to enlightenment in this life if you apply dedication, determination, and diligence to learning and practicing. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear we have any questions at this time, sir. All right. So now we're moving from talking about the animal realm into discussing the afflicted spirits. These chapters are all based on understanding the afflicted spirit realm, which some people also call hungry ghosts. Yes, sir. Uh, hungry ghosts, afflicted spirits. One, the skeleton. Venerable Mahamogalana said, here friend, as I was coming down from Mount Vulture Peak, I saw a skeleton moving through the air. Vultures, crows, and hawks, following it in hot pursuit, were pecking at it between the ribs, stabbing it and tearing it apart while it let out cries of pain. It occurred to me, it is wonderful indeed, it is amazing indeed, that there could be such a being, that there could be such a spirit, that there could be such a type of individual existence. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus, Monks, there are disciples who reside having become vision, having become knowledge, in that a disciple can know, see, and witness such a sight. In the past, monks, I too saw that being, but did not speak about it. For if I had spoken about it, others would not have believed me, and if they had not believed me, that would have led to their harm and discontentedness for a long time. That being, monks, used to be a cattle butcher in this same Rajagaha, old capital city of Magadha Kingdom. Having been tormented in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years, for many hundreds of thousands of years, as a result of that unwholesome karma, as a residual result of that same unwholesome karma, he is experiencing such a type of individual existence. Two, the piece of meat. I saw a piece of meat moving through the air. Vultures, crows, and hawks, following it in hot pursuit, were stabbing at it and tearing it apart as it let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus, that being monks, was a cattle butcher in the same Rajagaha. Three, the lump of meat. 
I saw a lump of meat moving through the air. Vultures, crows, and hawks following it in hot pursuit were stabbing at it and tearing it apart as it let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being was a sheep butcher in this same Rajaga. Five, sword hairs. I saw a man with body hairs of swords moving through the air. Those swords kept on rising up and striking his body while he let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being was a hog butcher in this same Rajagatha. Six, spear hairs. I saw a man with body hairs of spears moving through the air. Those spears kept on rising up and striking his body while he let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being was a deer hunter in this same Rajagatha. Seven, arrow hairs. I saw a man with body hairs of arrows moving through the air. Those arrows kept on rising up and striking his body while he let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being was a torturer in this same Rajagatha. Needle hairs, one. I saw a man with body hairs of needles moving through the air. Those needles kept on rising up and striking his body while he let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being was a horse trainer in this same Rajagatha. Needle hairs too. I saw a man with body hairs of needles moving through the air. Those needles entered his head and came out from his mouth. They entered his mouth and came out from his chest. They entered his chest and came out from his belly. They entered his belly and came out from his thighs. They entered his thighs and came out from his calves. They entered his calves and came out from his feet while he let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being was a slanderer in the same Rajagaha. 10. Pot testicles. I saw a man whose testicles were like pots moving through the air. When he walked, he had to lift his testicles on his shoulders, and when he sat down, he sat on top of his testicles. Vultures, crows, and hawks following him in hot pursuit were stabbing at him and tearing him apart while he let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being was a corrupt magistrate in this same Rajagaha. 11. With head submerged. I saw a man with head submerged in a pit of dung. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being was an adulterer in this same Rajagaha. 12. The dung eater. I saw a man submerged in a pit of dung, eating dung with both hands. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being monks was a hostile Brahmin in this same Rajagaha. In the time of the Buddha Kasapa's dispensation, he invited the male ordained community to a meal. Having had rice pots filled with dung, he said to the monks, sirs, eat as much as you want from this and take the rest away with you. Having been tormented in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years, for many hundreds of thousands of years, as a result of that unwholesome kama, as a residual result of that same unwholesome comma, he is experiencing such a type of individual existence. 13. The Flayed Woman I saw a flayed woman moving through the air. Vultures, crows, and hawks following her in hot pursuit were stabbing at her and tearing her apart while she let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That woman was an adulteress in this same Rajagaha. 
having been tormented in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years, for many hundreds of thousands of years as a result of that unwholesome karma, as a residual result of that same unwholesome karma, she is experiencing such a type of individual existence. 14, the ugly woman. I saw a woman, foul smelling and ugly, moving through the air. Vultures, crows and hawks, following her in hot pursuit, were stabbing at her and tearing her apart while she let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus, that woman was a fortune teller in this same Rajagaha. 15, the sweltering woman. I saw a woman, her body roasting, sweltering, sooty, moving through the air while she let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus, that woman was the chief queen of the king uh, Kalinga of a jealous character. She poured a brazier of coal, brazier of coals over one of the king's consorts. 16, the headless trunk. I saw a headless trunk moving through the air. Its eyes and mouth were on its chest. Vultures, crows, and hawks following it in hot pursuit were stabbing at it and tearing it apart while it let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That being was an executioner named Harika in this same Rajagaha. 17. The unwholesome male ordained practitioner. I saw a monk moving through the air. His outer robe, bowl, waistband, and body were burning, blazing, and flaming while he let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened monk addressed the monks thus. That monk had been an unwholesome monk in the Buddha Kasapa's dispensation. 18. The unwholesome female ordained practitioner. I saw a female ordained practitioner moving through the air. Her outer robe, bowl, waistband, and body were burning, blazing, and flaming while she let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That female ordained practitioner had been an unwholesome female ordained practitioner in the Buddha Kasapa's dispensation. 19. The unwholesome probationary nun. I saw a probationary nun moving through the air. Her outer robe, bowl, waistband, and body were burning, blazing, and flaming while she let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That probationary nun had been an unwholesome probationary nun in the Buddha Kasapa's dispensation. 20. The unwholesome novice monk. I saw a novice monk moving through the air. His outer robe, bowl, waistband, and body were burning, blazing, and flaming while he let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That novice monk had been an unwholesome novice monk in the Buddha Kasapa's dispensation. 21. The unwholesome novice nun. I saw a novice nun moving through the air. Her outer robe, bowl, waistband, and body were burning, blazing, and flaming while she let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus. That novice nun had been an unwholesome novice nun in the Buddha Kasapa's dispensation. All right. Thank you, Miranda. By the way, if you need help reading any of these chapters uh, today, just let me know. I'm pleased to, to read with you guys. So here the Buddha is explaining the various types of beings that 
existed in a human realm and then they were reborn into the afflicted spirits realm they may have been in the hell realm first and then made their way to the afflicted spirit realm but he's explaining the different conduct that would lead to rebirth in the afflicted spirits realm so here he's helping you to understand what led to these things so that then you can be understanding of that through the natural laws of existence and then you can choose if you like to improve any conduct that you see that these people did to end up in the afflicted spirits realm so that you don't end up there but instead you progress to enlightenment now remember the buddha describing here that he's seen certain things these are all formless beings so the afflicted spirit realm these are what we would call ghosts or spirits and these beings are formless there's not actual physical form but he saw these things with his own eyes that's why he's able to actually teach about them these aren't things that he heard or somebody told him or something like this instead the way a buddha is going to teach is based on their own direct experience so when he explains that he saw something occur and this is the reason why this person or this being was reborn into the afflicted spirits realm he's explaining the truth of what he knows to be true through his own direct experience so he's giving a whole list of various things that people have done in the past in order to end up as being reborn in this realm of afflicted spirits what questions do you guys have on this chapter it does not appear there are any questions on this chapter sir I see Ali's hand just raised. Perhaps she has a question. Yes, I missed that. Sorry, Ali. It's okay. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I have a question. So what's the difference between hell realm and afflicted spirit realm? In the hell realm, these beings are just experiencing nothing but excruciating painful feelings. Nothing but painful feelings. And they're being tormented and experiencing all kinds of difficulties and struggles they're not able to learn and practice the teachings whatsoever these are very significant problems that people have experienced in their previous births to end up in the hell realm the afflicted spirit realm this is a ghost this is a being who also experiences painful feelings like the other realms except for the heavenly realm but these beings end up in the afflicted spirit realm because they have extensive amounts of craving it's not just that they've done unwholesome things they have done unwholesome things but they have extensive amounts of craving that led to being reborn in the afflicted spirits realm it's not as bad as the hell realm they're not being tormented as significantly in the hell realm is just nothing but excruciating torment and you know despair and misery that's being experienced there where in the afflicted spirits realm there is also difficulties like the buddha is explaining here where these uh, he talks about what is it crows and uh where is it uh different ones he talks about crows there it is vultures crows and hawks um you know stabbing and tearing at this being this is minimal compared to what's experienced in the hell realm with the significant amount of pain and punishment that's being experienced there in that realm oh um so um is people that have an obsession with pursuing pleasure sensual pleasure will be um born in the afflicted spirit right yeah so this would be a good example like say there's a human being who has sensual desire and has an obsession with pursuing 
sensual pleasures. That being could be reborn in the afflicted spirits realm. But let's just say another being has that same sensual pleasures and they're still pursuing pleasant feelings through the senses, but it's not just a craving, but let's just say they act upon it and they have sexual misconduct repeatedly. Let's say they rape individuals. Let's just say they had sexual assaults with maybe minors or things like this. That being is going to go down into the hell realm versus someone who's just got the craving of sensual pleasures. If someone just has the craving of sensual pleasures, but they haven't really acted upon it very significantly, then that's where the a being would be reborn in afflicted spirits. But if there's been a lot of action, bodily, verbal, and mental, then because of acting upon those sensual pleasures and causing harm to other beings, that's where that being would then be reborn into a hell realm. Oh, so I, um, one more follow-up question. So like, could it be like, I feel like these people on earth, that is like the, uh, the hungry ghost. I mean, like those one that was just like, never get enough of, um, stuff. I mean, um, like they always pursuing sensual pleasure, obsession with sensual pleasure and never get enough of anything. Isn't it that kind of, they, they're kind of like a hungry ghost living on earth? Yeah, you can see beings that are in the human realm, you can see that they're leaning either towards hell, animal realm or afflicted spirits, or they're leaning towards a heavenly rebirth too. You can see these things in the conduct of human beings that exist today. So if you see somebody who's obsessively drinking or using drugs, they're constantly craving and wanting things from others, these are beings who are essentially in the human realm but their mind is leaning towards the afflicted spirits realm. And if they don't get help and they don't improve their conduct, they will very likely be reborn into the afflicted spirits realm. But that same individual who's acting upon things and causing harm to others can be easily reborn into the hell realm. So you can see beings in the human realm that are having certain conduct that is leaning towards rebirth in hell, animal or afflicted spirits, the more you understand the wisdom of these teachings and you observe what's going on in the world around you, you'll end up seeing beings in the human realm that are headed towards these lower realms based on their conduct. And they're very much functioning like an afflicted spirit, even though they're in the human realm, or they're very much functioning like an animal, even though they're in the human realm, or they're functioning very much like a hell being, even though they're in the human realm. And then you can also have beings that are in the human realm that are very much functioning like a heavenly being as well. And they're potentially going to have a heavenly rebirth, but none of those are the actual goals. The goals would be to get to enlightenment so that there is no rebirth whatsoever. Oh, um, is that true that, I mean, um, I was just thinking because there are so many rebirth, like we've been born so many times that all of us like have experienced all of that, just like the other being as well, that like, we have been like an afflicted spirit, um, hungry ghost, thief, um, all these different things, right? Yeah, when we're reborn into the human world, many of us have come from these lower realms, particularly the animal realm. Oftentimes we're reborn out of that realm into a human rebirth. And this is why we oftentimes function like animals. 
We even, oftentimes, people refer to human beings as animals, but we're not animals. We're human beings. We're in a completely different realm as animals, but our consciousness can still be functioning very much like an animal. And this is where when you evolve your consciousness from the animal consciousness to the human consciousness, you can see this improvement in the way that you function in the world, you function with others, and you can see the discontentedness gradually diminish. But yes, this is why we function like unskillful human beings. This is why we have craving anger and ignorance because we're constantly being reborn in this cycle of rebirth. And even though we're in the human realm, we still have these tendencies of our existences in these other realms. And also you can have beings from the heavenly realm reborn into the human realm and people who are born into the human realm can function more like a heavenly being because that was their previous birth. So this is why we see various beings at different ages functioning in the human realm like they're in a different realm. But what you're doing on this path to enlightenment is you're becoming more and more human. You're moving closer and closer to a human existence where you can cultivate wisdom and you can function as this human being with a higher consciousness without discontentedness and with wisdom. And now you can experience that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy as you interact in the world as a high consciousness, a higher consciousness human being, rather than having what we might call a lower consciousness or a undeveloped consciousness, which functions much more like beings in the lower realms, even though we're in the human realm. Oh, okay. Thank you. You're welcome, ma'am. Any more questions on this chapter? Uh, no, sir. It does not appear we have any more questions at this time. All right, so we'll move on to the next chapter. Again, Miranda, if you need any help reading and there's not volunteers, just let me know. Yes, if you wouldn't mind reading this chapter, sir. Sure. This is chapter 44. It's titled, Few Afflicted Spirits Are Reborn Among Human Beings or Heavenly Beings. What do you think, monks? Which is more, the little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great earth? Venerable sir, the great earth is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away from the realm of afflicted spirits, are reborn among human beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away from the realm of afflicted spirits, are reborn in hell, the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because, monks, they have not seen the Four Noble Truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. 
What do you think, monks? Which is more, the little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great earth? Venerable sir, the great earth is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away from the realm of afflicted spirits, are reborn among the heavenly beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away from the realm of afflicted spirits, are reborn in hell, in the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because, monks, they have not seen the Four Noble Truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, David, for reading that chapter. No, just kidding. <laughs> All right. So here the Buddha is explaining once a being is reborn in the afflicted spirits realm, it's more likely that they're going to be reborn in the realm of hell, the animal realm, or the afflicted spirits realm. They can be reborn into the human realm or the heavenly realm, but it's very rare. It doesn't occur as frequently. So there's this prison that the Buddha is describing in the previous chapter, the realm of hell and the realm of animal realm where once you're reborn into these lower realms it really takes a lot to get you back to the human realm or the heavenly realm so we can really appreciate this human birth and not allow it to go to waste and the reason why all of this is occurring is because beings don't understand and they haven't seen the four noble truths so you've seen those four noble truths but you need to be sure you penetrate them with wisdom and deeply understand them so that you can have this breakthrough in understanding why discontentedness is occurring in the mind. Therefore, when you understand the real problem of discontentedness, its cause, its elimination, and the path forward, then you can make efforts to eliminate discontentedness. But if you never understood the Four Noble Truths and you didn't have that breakthrough to establish right view, you wouldn't be able to accomplish that goal. So as a new student is starting off this path to enlightenment, the first place to start is the Four Noble Truths and establishing right view. And in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, a student would need to understand the three universal truths. So if you don't yet know those, like the back of your hand, and you could almost recite those from memory, the three universal truths and four noble truths, you need to develop that wisdom. Because in order to get to enlightenment, you would need to practice the Eightfold Path. But an enlightened being is actually practicing the Tenfold Path. The other two steps of the path are right wisdom and right liberation. 
So right wisdom is all about penetrating the teachings with wisdom and being able to explain them with ease. So if you're able to explain the three universal truths and the four noble truths with ease, then you're practicing right wisdom and enlightened being will have right wisdom. Not that you're going to necessarily go out and be a teacher, but if your teacher asked you, you know, what is the three universal truths? Explain those. You should be able to explain those on your own, even if a teacher didn't ask you. Or you should be able to explain what a craving desire attachment is. You should be able to explain the Four Noble Truths because it's so deeply penetrated into the mind that it's so easy for you to explain it. Whereas if you really struggled coming up with a definition of what the three universal truths are, a definition of what craving desire attachment is, or if you struggled with an understanding of being able to explain the Four Noble Truths, you haven't yet penetrated it with wisdom, which is ultimately what is going to lead to establishing right view and helping you get to enlightenment. So the Buddha is helping you see here that beings in the lower realms, they don't understand the Four Noble Truths. So if you're looking to avoid the lower realms and get to one of the four stages of enlightenment, preferably the fourth stage where the mind is enlightened as an arahant, then you really need to start with establishing right view and getting an understanding and practice of the Four Noble Truths. That's how you use a teaching like this because the Buddha is pointing you in the direction of enlightenment and helping you see that establishing right view as part of the Four Noble Truths is what's going to help you avoid these lower realms because that's what he's attempting to do is help students to get to enlightenment by avoiding rebirth in general but surely avoid rebirth into the lower realms. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, it does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, so let's move to the next chapter. We're moving into human beings and chapters related to that. This is chapter 45. Ten courses of wholesome karma deposited in heaven. <clears throat> Purity by body, Chunda, is threefold. Purity by speech is fourfold. Purity by mind is threefold. And how, Chunda, is purity by body threefold? One, here, someone, having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from the destruction of life. With the rod and weapon laid aside, diligent and kindly, he resides compassionate toward all living beings. Two, having abandoned the taking of what is not given, he abstains from taking what is not given. He does not steal the wealth and property of others in the village or in the forest. Three, having abandoned sexual misconduct, he abstains from sexual misconduct. He does not have sexual relations with women who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister, or relatives, who are protected by their teachings, who have a husband, whose violation entails a penalty, or even with one already engaged. It is in this way that purity by body is threefold. And how, Trinda, is purity by speech fourfold? Here, someone having abandoned false speech abstains from false speech. If he is summoned to a council, to an assembly, to his relative's presence, to his club or to the court, and questioned as a witness thus, so, good man, tell what you know. Then, not knowing, he says, I do not know. Or knowing, he says, I know. Not seeing, he says, I do not see. Or seeing, he says, I see. 
Thus he does not knowingly speak falsehood for his own benefit, or for another's benefit, or for some insignificant worldly benefit. Two, having abandoned argumentative speech, he abstains from argumentative speech. Having heard something here, he does not repeat it elsewhere in order to divide those people from means, or having heard something elsewhere, he does not repeat it to these people in order to divide them from those. Thus he is one who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of unity, who enjoys calmness, rejoices in calmness, encourages calmness, a speaker of words that promote calmness. Three, having abandoned harsh speech, he abstains from harsh speech. He speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable, as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many, and agreeable to many. Four, having abandoned idle chatter, he abstains from idle chatter. He speaks at a proper time, speaks truth, speaks what is beneficial, speaks on the teachings and the discipline at a proper time. He speaks such words as are worth recording, reasonable, concise, and beneficial. It is in this way that purity by speech is fourfold. And how, Chunda, is purity by mind threefold? Here, one, here, someone is without longing, craving. He does not long for the wealth and property of others thus. Oh, may what belongs to another be mine. Two, he is of goodwill, loving kindness, and his intentions are free from hate thus. May these beings live peacefully, free from hostility, harm, and anxiety. Three, he holds right view or wisdom and has a correct perspective thus. There is what is given, sacrificed, and offered. There is fruit and resolve of wholesome and unwholesome actions. There is this world and the other world. There is mother and father. There are beings spontaneously reborn. There are in the world ascetics and brahmins of right conduct and right practice who, having realized this world and the other world for themselves by direct knowledge, experience, make them known to others. It is in this way that purity by mind is threefold. These chunda are the ten courses of wholesome kama. It is because people engage in these ten courses of wholesome kama that the heavenly beings, human beings, and other good destinations are seen. Monks, one possessing these ten qualities, is deposited in heaven as if brought there. Wonderful. Thank you, Miranda. So here, the Buddha is talking about the way to generate wholesome gamma and giving you 10 individual aspects of that. This is kind of a good place to begin for anybody who's coming into learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings. Once you are establishing right view and you're looking at improving your conduct by body, speech, and mind, the Buddha here is pointing out very specific things that we can do and make wiser decisions about our conduct. And this is what's gonna help bring peace of mind. Because as long as we are destroying life, or we're stealing, taking what is not given, or we have sexual misconduct, it's gonna be very hard to get to a peaceful life because as you're harming people and beings through destroying life, through stealing and having sexual misconduct, that harm is all gonna be coming back to you. So it's gonna be very hard for you to get to a peaceful, calm, serene, and consent mind with joy as long as this harm is coming back to you. So cleaning this bodily conduct up in the way that the Buddha describes this threefold aspects of that, which is part of his five precepts as well, but it's just being further discussed here. This will really help one to move closer to enlightenment. 
and then he talks about speech as well because as you guys know in the eightfold path he describes right speech and he gives different aspects of right speech but then in other parts of his teachings he elaborates on right speech things like the five factors of well-spoken speech and then here he kind of breaks it down in an even more summarized version where he talks about not lying essentially he talks about not arguing where you need to see that arguing with somebody does not produce anything wholesome whatsoever. It's just your own craving, your own desire, maybe your own conceit, your own arrogance, your own ego that's keeping you in that argument. And when it's just going to divide people when you start arguing. So being able to walk away from someone who wants to argue with you is really some great discipline and some great restraint of the mind that you might not have right now but you can develop that there's just no reason to argue whatsoever the more you argue with people the more people are going to argue with you and it's very difficult to have a peaceful calm serene and consent mind with joy as long as you're arguing with others and people are arguing with you so you've got to stop arguing with others in order for them to stop arguing with you and in some cases that means you need to just cut off any craving that's arising to argue and just walk away and just ignore the situation there's no reason to sit there in conversation with someone who's being argumentative and then he's talking about harsh speech here remember we should have gentle speech because as long as we speak harshly to others with our tone, our tempo, and our word choice, then if we're harsh to others, people are going to be harsh with us. And again, if we're continually being harsh with people, they're going to be harsh with us. And it's going to be very difficult to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when people are constantly speaking harsh with you. And then idle chatter is just kind of chit-chat, kind of random talk. If you have craving to just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, where it's not beneficial and it's not being spoken at the right time, then you're having idle chatter or frivolous speech. And this is very wise for you to get to a point where you don't have craving to talk, where you're okay to just sit there and be quiet if you need to, or when you do talk, that it's very purposeful and beneficial. And that will really help you to be influential in your community. And then the Buddha talks about purity by mind. Essentially what he's talking about is eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance. That's what he's describing here. By eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance and practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, then you're developing the purity of your mind. And then he's explaining how this is going to help you to develop wholesome gamma or essentially make wise decisions that produce wholesome outcomes because that's what gamma is. Gamma is cause and effect or action and result, the results of our decisions. So if we make wise decisions through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, then we're going to be making decisions that produce wholesome outcomes or wholesome gamma. That's what gamma is, the results of our decisions. And we would like our decisions to be informed by wisdom so that as we make wise decisions, then we're able to produce wholesome results or wholesome outcomes. What questions do you guys have about this chapter? And by the way, just to end that off, the Buddha is explaining someone who practices in this way is essentially headed towards the heavenly realm. Your goal is to not be reborn in the heavenly realm. Your goal is to get to enlightenment. And these same things that he's talking about here that leads to rebirth in the heavenly realm are the same things you need to cultivate in order to get to actually enlightenment. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. In Zoom, Rick asked, 
Would the taking of intoxicants fit into one of these forms of purity or impurity, sir? Yeah, so the Buddha teaches with these different layers. And if you look in his Eightfold Path, in terms of bodily action, he really talks about these three that are described here in the Eightfold Path. Because the Eightfold Path is just this you know, certain layer of information that's helping you to develop your practice. He talks about eliminating the destruction of life, eliminating the taking of what's not given, and abandoning sexual misconduct. And that's a certain level of understanding, a certain level of practice that you're, you know, building up your life practice. And if you can get to the point where you've eliminated killing, you've eliminated stealing and taking what is not given, and you've eliminated sexual misconduct, then wonderful. But then there's deeper teachings that he expands upon that plug into the Eightfold Path as something such as a right action or bodily action or purity of a bodily action because by taking substances that cause heedlessness this is a bodily action that we do that is motivated by craving of the mind but it's a bodily action that causes harm to us and then when we get heedless then we tend to function in ways that is harmful to others where we then are more likely to kill, we're more likely to steal, we're more likely to have sexual misconduct, we're more likely to lie and do all these other unwholesome things. So the way that I teach this is I help students to understand that taking substances that cause heedlessness is an unwholesome bodily action but the Buddha is teaching it here in various layers because he teaches that also as part of the five precepts, but he doesn't show it here in this particular teaching because he's teaching in layers. A person has to kind of bring their practice to a certain level, and then once they get stable with that, then they kind of bring it up to the next level and the next level and the next level. So if you've gotten to this point where you've eliminated destruction of life, stealing, and sexual misconduct, then yes, you can move on to other things where you now practice eliminating substances that cause heedlessness and other harmful bodily conduct. One of the things that I share is, you know, the Buddha doesn't explain, you know, don't walk up to someone and punch them in the face because that's a bodily conduct that's going to cause harm to others and therefore it's going to cause harm to you. He doesn't say that in his teachings. But if you understand what he's describing is this purity of bodily conduct, then not only is it unwise to punch somebody in the face, but it's unwise to drag your suitcase down the aisle of an airplane and hit people's feet and knees and things like this. It's unwise as you pick up your suitcase and put it on the overhead bin to drop it and have it land on someone's head. This is going to cause you difficulties because you're causing harm through your bodily conduct. So if you're very aware of your bodily movements and making sure you're not causing harm to others, you can see there's a whole litany of things that are harmful. Like now I'm in this hotel, we're up on the 24th floor. If I was to take this water bottle and drop it off the balcony, the Buddha doesn't explain to not do that. But if you understand purity of bodily conduct, then that's a bodily action that would cause harm to somebody potentially down on the ground. And we should purify our mind of having a craving or desire to do something like this. So keep this in mind that the Buddha is describing a certain level of detail, some very significant things like 
killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct, but there's this whole plethora of other things that we could do with our bodily conduct that could cause harm. And we would like to purify all of that out of our practice so that then we're not causing any harm through our bodily conduct whatsoever. Yes, sir. Um, regarding idle chatter, it's understood that gossip is part of idle chatter. And I was wondering if there is something better, more beneficial to be done, um, situations where coworkers are gossiping about another coworker, what's been the practice that I've most of the time throughout most of my life have done is just sit quietly and then when there's a chance to change the subject or walk away to do one of those two things. But is there something that could be done that is more beneficial there, sir? That's very wise. That keeps you to the point where you're not gossiping. You know, you're just ignoring the conversation or you're leaving the conversation. That's very wise to do, particularly only early on when you don't have wisdom and you don't have control of the mind. But as you progress in your practice, you could do things where as people are looking at you and gossiping, you might just say, you know, I prefer not to gossip. Let's talk about something else. Or would you mind talking about something else? I prefer not to gossip. But you have to be aware that in those situations, people can get really angry because essentially you're pointing out to them that they're gossiping. And people typically who are gossiping, they don't like to be shown that they're practicing unwholesome conduct. So you need to make sure that your relationship is such with this coworker or with this friend or with this family member that you feel if you said something along these lines that they would receive that well. Not that you're trying to change them, not that you're trying to teach them in that situation, but you can drop a little hint to them and you might not even use the word gossip. You might just say, you know, I prefer not to speak badly of others. How about we discuss something else or, you know, you could just change the subject or whatever. There's ways to kind of drop those little hints to people to help them see that they're practicing in such a way that you prefer not to practice. But you need to say that in a way that doesn't put you up on a high horse where you have arrogance and looking down on them. You have to be very warm, very loving and very compassionate about the way that you say those things. So be sure that if you're going to drop any of those little hints like that to people that you do it practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech that you speak at the right time what you say is true that you speak gentle that you speak beneficially and with a mind of loving kindness and you can get your practice to a point where you can actually help that person if they choose to understand what you're sharing with them by sprinkling some of the teachings into their life like this but early on if the relationship is new or if your practice is new and you don't really have control of your mind and kind of wise about things i would say what you're doing now just leaving or not engaging or what have you that's the best thing to do but as your practice evolves and you can say and drop these little hints that can be helpful because in certain situations where you drop the hints, if your practice is more developed, they might say something back to you, right? Like if they say something back to you, like, well, who do you think you are telling me not to gossip? Whereas if you have a lot of craving, anger, and ignorance, and you don't know how to respond to that, then you might actually create an argument here in this situation. So if you feel that you have control of your mind and you can drop these little hints, it can be helpful to others. But just be sure that you observe your own mind and that you're 
still practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech and you're not dropping these hints with craving anger and ignorance because that would produce unwholesome results for you because when you don't engage and you just you know kind of walk away you're not causing any unwholesome karma whatsoever in your mind can be protected in that but if you're taking the effort to now drop a couple of hints and they say something disparaging or degrading or they become argumentative and you don't know how to handle that now you might end up producing unwholesome gamma in this situation if you start practicing wrong speech so just be aware of that if you're going to try to drop any hints or sprinkle some of these teachings in there that you still maintain your practice very well and then if they become argumentative remember that you always have the option to walk away and that can be very helpful to you yes thank you sir you're welcome uh it does not appear we have any other questions at this time sir all right we're chapter 46. yes sir let's go to Allie to read chapter 46 please thank you miranda five advantage to one of wholesome morality and of success in morality. And householder, there are these five advantages to one of the wholesome morality and of success in morality. What are they? In the first place, through careful attention to his fear, he gains much wealth. In second place, he gets a wholesome reputation for morality and wholesome conducts. In the third place, whatever example he approach, whether of Katiyas, Brahman, householder, or ascetic, he does so with confidence and assurance. In the fourth place, he dies unconfused in the fifth place, after that, at the breaking up of the body, he arises in good, in a good place, a heavenly world. These are the five advantages to one of wholesome morality and of success in morality. Thank you, Ali. That was very helpful. Mm-hmm. So here, the Buddha is explaining how you can benefit from your own wholesome moral conduct and how you can achieve success through your moral conduct. There's lots of benefits to having wholesome moral conduct, but here the Buddha is explaining some of the top ones. In the first place, he's saying, okay, if you have this wholesome moral conduct, you're going to pay close attention to your affairs or to your task that you have on a daily basis because you're not interested in causing harm to others. So you have this morality, this moral conduct where you're trying to purify your body, your speech and your mind and to ensure that you're not causing harm through your actions, your speech or through your intentions. And by doing that, you're going to pay close attention to tasks that you're doing on a daily basis, ensuring that you're not causing harm and you're going to be doing good quality work through the task that you deliver on a day-to-day basis. And the Buddha is saying, okay, if you do this, if you have this wholesome moral conduct and you pay close attention to your daily task, it's going to help you gain wealth. 
right? And the goal of life isn't to be wealthy and everybody to be wealthy, but when we have a certain income, it does help our life to be a little bit easier. When we struggle with our moral conduct and we make unwise decisions, we don't pay close attention to our daily task, then we lack the ability to make income and therefore we struggle to get the basic necessities that we need for life. Things like food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. So the Buddha is saying, okay, if you improve your moral conduct, you're going to pay closer attention to your day-to-day task, and this is going to help you to gain wealth because you're going to be more desirable as an employee, or if you're a boss, you're going to be more successful. The second one, he says that by having this good moral conduct, you develop a wholesome reputation. And with this wholesome reputation, based on your wholesome moral conduct, this is also going to help you in your community. And then the third place or the third benefit is that when you approach various communities of people, whether katiyas, which these people are really well known during the lifetime of the Buddha for being very wholesome, very well established community, very rich and affluent whether they're Brahmin, which were priests, whether they're householders, or whether they're aesthetics, which are monks. He's saying when you approach these wholesome people and these successful people, you'll do so with confidence. Where if you know in your mind that you're unwholesome and you're doing unwholesome things, when you approach people who are successful and who are leading a holy life, you're going to feel conflicted inside. And you're going to feel that the mind isn't quite you know, able to interact with this person group of people or this person with confidence and assurance. But when you know you're being wholesome, you don't have to be shy about your conduct. You can approach these various groups of people with confidence, and this is going to allow you to be more successful. The Buddha talks about not dying confused, right? Because if we die confused, essentially what confusion is, is it's that ignorance, the delusion, the confusion, the unknowing of true reality. But if you're practicing wholesome moral conduct, you would have had to learn and develop wisdom to get to that point where you can practice wholesome moral conduct. And then you'll die unconfused is what the Buddha is explaining. And then with the breakup of the body, having good moral conduct, there's a chance that you could be reborn into the heavenly world. Again, that's not the goal, but that's one of the benefits of practicing good, wholesome moral conduct. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So we will move on to chapter 47. One is reborn through one's deeds. Monks. Beings are the owners of their kama, the heirs of their kama. They have kama as their origin, kama as their relative, kama as their resort. Whatever kama they do, wholesome or unwholesome, they are its heirs. Here, having abandoned the destruction of life, someone abstains from the destruction of life. With the rod and weapon laid aside, dedicated and kindly, he resides compassionate toward all living beings. He does not creep along by body, speech, and mind. His bodily comma is straight, his verbal comma is straight, his mental comma is straight, his destination is straight, his rebirth is straight. But for one with a straight destination and rebirth, I say, there is one of two destinations, either the exclusively pleasant heavens or influential families, such as those of affluent katyas, affluent brahmins, or affluent householders. Families that are rich, with great wealth and property, abundant gold and silver, abundant treasures and belongings, 
abundant wealth and grain. Thus a being is reborn from a being. One is reborn through one's deeds. When one has been reborn, contacts affect one. It is in this way, I say, that beings are the heirs of their karma. The Tathagata spoke of abandoning, of taking what is not given and abandoning sexual misconduct with discourses similar to that of abandoning taking life. He also spoke of the fourfold wholesome conduct of speech and the threefold wholesome conduct of mind in the same way. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, essentially what the Buddha is explaining is based on your actions, based on your deeds, both bodily, verbal, and mental, this is what's going to determine your rebirth. To determine whether there is rebirth or not, that's craving. If there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind at the time of death, there is going to be rebirth. But the condition of your rebirth, in what realm and what type of family you're born into, if you're in the human realm and so forth, that's based on your gamma, based on your deeds, based on your actions, both bodily, verbal, and mental. And that's what he's explaining here, and that you can't run and hide from the results of your decisions. When you're making decisions about bodily conduct, verbal conduct, and your mental conduct, you can't run and hide from that. You're going to experience that either in this life or some future life. So with that understanding, then if you understand that deeply, then you would be interested and motivated to absolutely practice wholesome moral conduct because you know that you're either going to experience this harm that you're causing others in this life or some future life and why continue to cause harm to myself essentially because if you're causing harm to others that harm is going to come back to you it's like stabbing yourself with a knife and why would you do that it's like taking a hammer and hitting yourself upside of the head with a hammer so why would you continue to do that if you had the wisdom to understand that any harm that you're causing is going to come back to you so by understanding this wisdom that the buddha is explaining then you can make decisions to gain the wisdom to improve your conduct and then function in a world in a very wholesome way by eliminating those 10 fetters, essentially eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance in those detailed versions of the 10 fetters. And by doing that, your mind and your life is going to be so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And ultimately, if there is rebirth, meaning you've fallen short of attaining enlightenment, then the Buddha is explaining that you're going to have an improved rebirth. So your motivation to learn and practice in this life should be to attain enlightenment. But just know any work and effort that you put in to attain enlightenment in this life, if you fall short of enlightenment for any reason, all that work and effort is going to benefit you in your next life in terms of where you're reborn in the condition of your mind in that next rebirth. So just keep that in mind that nothing you do in this life is to waste. Right? You're not interested in wasting this human existence. And as you're meditating, as you're learning, as you're diving deeply into these teachings and practicing them closer and closer, that's all benefiting you in this life. And should there need to be rebirth, it's going to benefit you in a future life too. So you're accumulating the benefits of developing your life practice. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So let's move to chapter 46. Actually, I'm sorry, um, 48. <laughs> yes, uh, let's go to Allie to read chapter 48, sir. Okay, thank you. Um, three surpassing respect of 
and three respects the people of Uttaraguru surpass the heavenly being. Pavatisma uh, and the people of Jambutipa, one of the great continent. What three? They are without selfishness and possessiveness. Their lifespan is fixed. Their living conditions are exceptional. In, in these three respects, the people of Uttaraguru surpass the heavenly beings and the people of Jambudipa. In three respects, the people of Jambudipa surpass the people of Uttaraguru and the heavenly beings. What three? They are hero, they are mindful, and there is a living of the spiritual life there here. In these in these three respects, the people of Jambudipa surpass the people of Uttaraguru and the heavenly beings. All right, thank you, Ali. I can't pronounce those words, so you did an outstanding <laughs> job pronouncing them. So essentially what the Buddha is talking about are these three different groups, right? This one that I can't pronounce, Uttarakura, the Jambudipa, and the heavenly beings. And the Buddha is explaining, you know, kind of the qualities that are cultivated in these human beings that are better than the heavenly beings. So the way that you look at this is you basically look at it as a way of these are things that you would like to cultivate. So when he talks about they are without selfishness and possessiveness, ah, that's something that I would like to cultivate, not being selfish, giving and sharing, not holding on to possessions, thinking that they're mine, 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 because it's only going to cause you discontentedness. So to get to enlightenment, an enlightened being is not selfish. They're not possessive. They understand that the things that they have in their life don't truly belong to them because there's no I here. So this computer isn't mine, or these clothes aren't mine. They don't belong to me. I'm essentially just using them for a period of time, and this time is impermanent. Eventually, this computer will no longer be with me. Eventually, these clothes will no longer be with me. So we can then practice giving and sharing to eliminate selfishness and not hold on to possessions. He talks about their lifespan is fixed and their living conditions are exceptional probably because they're without selfishness. And then he talks about people being heroes here, essentially helping others. He talks about mindfulness or awareness of mind and that they're practicing the spiritual life. So this is the group of people that he's saying is, is you know so much further above the heavenly beings or so far above this other group because they're helping others, essentially being heroes. They're practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind and they're living the spiritual life. They're developing their life practice. That's what you would like to essentially work towards, helping others, developing this awareness of mind and living this life where you're gaining wisdom of this life of, of the path to enlightenment and you're practicing and cultivating it on a regular basis. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, let's go to chapter 49. Birth is the origin of discontentedness, the union of three things. Monks, 
The conception of an embryo in a womb takes place through the union of three things. Here, there is the union of the mother and father, but it is not the mother's season, and the consciousness or mind, Gandhava, to be reborn is not present. In this case, there is no conception of an embryo in a womb. Here, there is the union of the mother and father, and it is the mother's season, but the consciousness mind to be reborn is not present. In this case, too, there is no conception of an embryo in a womb. But when there is the union of the mother and father, and it is the mother's season, and the consciousness mind to be reborn is present, through the union of these three things, the conception of an embryo in a womb takes place. The mother then carries the embryo in her womb for nine or ten months with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then, at the end of nine or ten months, the mother gives birth with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then, when the child is born, she nourishes it with her own blood, for the mother's breast milk is called blood in the noble one's discipline. When he grows up and his sense bases mature, the child plays at such games with, as toy plows, tip cat, somersaults, toy windmills, toy measures, toy carts, and a toy bow and arrow. When he grows up and his sense bases mature still further, the youth enjoys himself provided and endowed with the five chords of sensual pleasure, with forms recognizable by the eye, sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, physical objects recognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative with craving. On seeing a form with the eye, he craves after it if it is pleasing. He dislikes it if it is unpleasing. He resides with mindfulness of the body unestablished, with a limited mind, and he does not understand as it actually is the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom wherein those evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. Engaged as he is in favoring and opposing, whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. As he does so, excitement rises in him. Now excitement in feelings is clinging. With his clinging as condition, existence comes to be. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentedness. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a physical object with the body, on recognizing a mental object with the mind, he craves after it if it is pleasing. He dislikes it if it is unpleasing. He resides with mindfulness of the body unestablished, with a limited mind, and he does not understand as it actually is the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom, wherein those evil, unwholesome states are eliminated without remainder. Engaged as he is in favoring and opposing, whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. As he does so, excitement arises in him. Now excitement in feelings is clinging. With his clinging as condition, existence comes to be with existence as condition, birth, with birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be.
Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentedness. Thank you, Miranda. So the Buddha describes in dependent origination the 12 causes and conditions that leads to rebirth and leads to discontentedness. But here he's actually taking you through in a more story form and explaining how birth even comes to be in this human realm. And he walks you through from birth and conception, from conception to development in the womb to birth to what leads to discontentedness. And this can really help you to see how a being is essentially conceived, how it grows in the womb, how it's born, and then how ultimately we experience discontentedness. And this is really you know, eye-opening for you because here the Buddha is describing conception with the mother and the father coming together, the mother being in season, or we would look at this as essentially the egg is coming out of the ovary into the uterus. And then there is a consciousness or a mind. So these are the three things that are needed in order for there to be a conception is there needs to be the union of a mother and father. There needs to be an egg that comes out of the ovaries into the uterus. And then there needs to be a consciousness that's ready to be reborn. And when those three things come together, there's going to be a being created in the womb. And this is where you can see that the Buddha essentially teaches that Uh, at the time of conception it is a living being because you need to have the five aggregates in order for there to be a living being the five aggregates are form feeling perception volitional formations which are choices and decisions and there needs to be a consciousness so this is why what people teach in terms of the first precept of not killing Uh, living beings, not destroying life, that if we terminate pregnancies, for example, we are killing a living being. And whether you choose to do that or not is your choice. The Buddhist teachings aren't political in nature and telling us what our human laws should be or what they shouldn't be. But if you're choosing to have a termination of a pregnancy, then understand that at that time there is a consciousness that has come together and the Buddha is explaining that. Remember that during the lifetime of the Buddha, people were leaving their household life to come learn with him. And there wasn't these massive educational systems that we have nowadays in modern times. So people were coming and learning things for the first time that they didn't necessarily understand how a being comes to be. So here he's explaining in simple form how a being comes to be in this human realm. The union of the mother and father, then there's a mother who's in season or the egg is releasing from the ovaries and then there's this consciousness that is ready to be reborn and with the union of those three things now there's an embryo in the actual womb and it grows for nine or ten months and as the buddha explains there's much anxiety and a heavy burden for a mother for anyone who's a mother knows that for anyone who's been around a mother who's been pregnant and ultimately gives birth, you know there's much anxiety and a heavy burden that a female has as part of birthing and developing this this baby. And then the Buddha goes through and even talks about you know nourishing the baby with the mother's milk. He talks about how the sense bases are matured and the child plays these various games. He talks about the sense bases still continuing to mature, those six sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind. And then there's this central craving that starts to arise. And he talks about how 
this craving, we experience these pleasant feelings, and then we experience these dislikes or these unpleasant feelings. And he just walks you through piece by piece and showing you how it's these six sense bases that start to produce this favoring and opposing essentially this agreeable and disagreeable contact that we experience through the six sense bases that leads to pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. When we have agreeable or favoring contact or likable contact, we're gonna experience these pleasant feelings. When we have this opposing or this disagreeable or dislikable contact through the six sense spaces. We're going to have these painful feelings. And then if the mind delights in this feeling or welcomes it or remains holding on to it, then this whole cycle of discontentedness now continues because the mind is clinging to excitement. As long as there's clinging as condition, there's going to be existence in the cycle of rebirth. Because there's going to be birth, there's going to be aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. And the Buddha is explaining how this whole massive discontentedness occurs in this life and in other lives. And he's walking you through piece by piece explaining that. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So the last chapter for today, which is chapter 50, we'll go ahead and do that one. Um, yes, sir. Um, could you please read this chapter, sir? <laughs> sure. I had a feeling you're going to say that. There's a lot of words that I can't pronounce in here, but I'll give it my best. How is one developed in the womb? Then the Yaka Indaka, this is an ind indigenous ethnic group from the Indian subcontinent, approached the perfectly enlightened one and addressed him in verse. As the Buddhists say that form is not the soul, how then does one obtain this body? From where does one's bones and liver come from? How is one developed in the womb? Right. So here somebody's asking him this question because the Buddha never taught whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. So if the Buddhists say that this physical form, this physical body is not the soul, then how does one get this body and how does it come to be? That's what this person is asking the Buddha. The perfectly enlightened one says this. First, and, and essentially what he's doing is he's going through explaining the whole cycle of how a being comes to be in the, the womb using these words that you can look them up. These are traditional words that are referring to various things. First, there is a Kalala, I guess. From the Kalala comes the Abaduba. From the Abaduba, Duda, the Pesa is produced. From the Pesa, the Ghana is arises. From the Ghana emerges the limbs, the head hair, body hair, and nails. And whatever food the mother eats, the meals and drinks that she consumes, by this, the being there is maintained the person inside the mother's womb. So this is wisdom that wouldn't be readily available to the average person during the lifetime of the Buddha because they didn't necessarily understand how beings came to be. Today, our understanding of how this occurs is very clear. We have science, we have modern technology that we've really advanced in our understanding over the last 2,500 years. But here, the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, understood things that you know we didn't necessarily understand until the last 100 or 200 or 300 years. 
years. So the Buddha is explaining it through these words that they understood at the time. You can take any of these words and bold and Google them, and they will come up and explain to you what the Buddha was describing here. But essentially, he's just describing the growth of the embryo inside the womb. And the way that that occurs is through what the mother ingests in terms of food. This nourishes the embryo and allows the person to develop inside the mother's womb. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that we have any questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, that concludes our class for today in terms of the chapters that we had planned to discuss. We are going to be moving into chapters 51 through uh, 60 next week. So feel free to read those prior to class and you'll be able to then ask questions in the class related to those chapters. So I'd like to thank all of you once again for joining. Thank you for understanding the bit of impermanence that I'm experiencing as I'm traveling and not being able to live stream in the way that I typically do. But the content is here for you to learn and you're always welcome to join Zoom because I have a decent connection that way. But the live stream just isn't what I normally would live stream. But starting on the 3rd of August, which is this Wednesday, I should be back in Chiang Mai and able to start doing all the live streams with the normal bandwidth that I have at home and using all the various technology that I usually use. So thank you all for continuing to learn and practice these teachings. Next week, we'll be doing chapters 51 through 60. Tomorrow in the group learning program, again, I'll be in Zoom and I'll be live streaming out of Zoom into YouTube, Facebook, and all the other places. We'll be covering chapter 13 in volume one. Chapter 13 is all about identifying your cravings because by learning how to identify your cravings, then you can actually eliminate them. As the Buddha was talking about today, in learning the Four Noble Truths, you understand that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing discontentedness. And you need to eliminate the craving, desire, attachments in order to eliminate discontentedness and get to enlightenment. But how could you ever eliminate the attachments those craving desire attachments, how could you ever eliminate them if you weren't able to identify them? So I'm gonna teach you how to identify them. This particular skill or this particular ability is I would say right along the lines of meditation. As much as we develop meditation on this path to enlightenment, you need to develop this skill or ability to identify your own cravings, desire, attachments, because you're not gonna have a teacher there to help you identify these every moment that you're experiencing them. So by you developing this skill and ability, just like you would develop the ability to meditate, for example, then you'll be able to more actively progress to enlightenment and progressing on this path to enlightenment. And then on Wednesday, I'll be doing a guided breathing mindfulness meditation session from Chiang Mai. So thank you all for joining. Thank you all for your dedication. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. 
A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.